0: is he safe? I'm rather nervous about meeting a lion, the child said. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. This dialogue is taken from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, a book by C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia series, and the dialogue concerns a character named Aslan, who, if you haven't read the books or seen the movies, is a lion, um, who very obviously is an allegory for Christ. Elsewhere in this book, Aslan is described as wild and not a tame lion. I mentioned this, this dialogue, uh, which is essentially Lewis commenting on Christ, because I think it can offer some insight into what is, if we're honest with ourselves, a perplexing and strange first reading. Right where God himself commands Abraham to offer his son as a sacrifice. So let's look at this bizarre first reading, this upsetting first reading, and then we can see what insight Lewis's uh, characters from the Chronicle of Narnia can offer. And let's start with the elephant in the room. Why on earth would God command this of Abraham? Why on earth would a father agree to this? I mean, what in the world is going on in this first reading? And I'll say this, that we do need to put this reading in its historical context. Because sadly, in Abraham's day, human sacrifice was not uncommon. You know, throughout world history, many pagan religions practiced ritual human sacrifice to one degree or another. It was practiced on a large scale in Carthage, this Empire, city-state empire in in North Africa, which was an early adversary of Rome and contended with Rome for control of the Mediterranean. When European uh, conquistadors came to to the Americas and encountered the Aztec civilization, the Aztecs on a large-scale practiced ritual human sacrifice. So too did the Incas. And I'm not picking on those three civilizations. We see Ritual evidence for ritual human sacrifice on pretty much every continent, save for Antarctica. We even see it in the Bible, right? Israel was surrounded by Canaanite tribes and nations that practiced some form of ritual human sacrifice. In fact, one of those tribes, the Phoenicians, they they actually went and founded the city of Carthage. Abraham would have been surrounded by people who practiced human sacrifice. So, all of this is to say, while I'm sure it was a heartbreaking command for him to receive, it would not have seemed as totally insane to Abraham as it does to us. But more to the point, uh, the angel of the Lord ultimately stops Abraham. God is testing Abraham, not because God wants to find out how much faith Abraham has. God already knows that. He's stretching Abraham so that his faith grows to a historic degree. But God, he is, really, he's definitively rejecting human sacrifice. It's as if he were saying by this action, this event, human sacrifice will have absolutely no part in my covenant with my chosen people. And so Israel, which for centuries would live among peoples who practiced human sacrifice, they never officially adopted it. They never um, adopted this horrible practice. That offers some explanation, but, you know, there's more going on in this reading still. This sacrifice of Isaac, it it prefigures, it points forward to the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. And some of this we miss in this lectionary because to, to keep the reading kind of short, it skips around, it skips some verses, and it Sadly, it skips a few that are really important. For instance, in verse 6, Abraham puts the, gives the wood for the sacrifice for the burnt offering to Isaac to carry up Mount Moriah. Now, this is significant for two reasons, right? First, it is, is Isaac will carry the wood for the sacrifice up Moriah, so in the fullness of time will Jesus carry the wood of the cross up Calvary. But there's also kind of a hidden implication here. Abraham carries up the fire and a knife. Isaac carries up what was the much heavier load, a bundle of wood. This implies that Isaac, at this point, is stronger than Abraham. It means we're not dealing with a small child, but at the very least, a teenage boy. And Abraham, by this point, was very old. He was a very old man when Isaac was born, even more so now. So all of this is to say it's reasonable to assume Isaac willingly laid down his life. It it is reasonable to assume Abraham couldn't overpower him. Why is that significant? Well, just as Isaac most likely willingly laid down his life, so too Jesus did the same. You know, he tells us, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Furthermore, in verse 8, another verse that's skipped in the lectionary, as is Isaac and Abraham are going up Mount Moriah, Isaac turns to Abraham and says, Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham prophetically responds, God Himself will provide the Lamb for the sacrifice. Fast forward to the first chapter of John's Gospel when the Baptist, John the Baptist, sees Jesus for the first time. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, behold Him who takes away the sins of the world. With Jesus, God provides the Lamb. For the sacrifice which superabundantly atones for our sins. But of course, there is still more going on here. And we learn that when we read chapter 11 from the letter to the Hebrews, which offers some insight into Abraham's mind. You know, it tells us that Abraham lived by faith. And he reasoned, he went, he went along with this command or assented to this command because he reasoned that God could raise someone. Uh, even from the dead, could raise men even from the dead. Abraham believed. He lived by faith. Let's talk about faith. What is faith? On just a natural level, faith is believing something is true based on the testimony of a witness. I have never been to Antarctica, but I believe it exists. It's very reasonable to believe it it exists because there is an abundant of witnesses who have been there and testified to it. Right? That's faith on a natural level. On a supernatural level, faith is believing something is true because God has revealed it. God is the witness who cannot deceive nor be deceived. The virtue of faith that we receive at baptism enables us to believe all that God has revealed in sacred scripture, tradition, and the teachings of the Catholic Church because he cannot deceive nor be deceived. Right? So we, as God said in our gospel, we listen to him. We we accept as true all he has said. And so Abraham is our father in faith. He knew God could not deceive nor be deceived. He knew God had promised that he would be the father of a great nation. God miraculously, when he was as <coughs> so old he was as good as dead, as Hebrews puts it, God gave him his only child, Isaac. The only child through whom this promise could be fulfilled. And then God asked for that child back. And so he, re- he was put in an impossible situation. He couldn't see how God could come up with a solution out of this, but he trusted. His faith was stretched to a heroic degree and he trusted that God had a solution to this terrible ordeal, and he did. Nonetheless, Abraham's ordeal it shows us that God is not a tame lion, so to speak. Abraham's ordeal shows us that to truly follow Christ is not to follow someone who is safe, if by safe we mean the comfortable and easy. No, instead, to follow Christ, it means to follow him to Calvary. But the cross is the road that leads to eternal glory. And this is the dynamic we see in our gospel, where Jesus takes three apostles, Peter, James, and John, leads them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And right here, this idea of climbing a mountain, it is something of an image for carrying our cross, right? Because we're leaving what's familiar, what's below, and we're engaging in an arduous upward climb, a climb that gets harder the higher we get as the air thins out and the terrain gets rougher, right? But, uh, and so this is, this is what it means to carry the cross, to follow Christ means to leave behind what is familiar, Right? means to leave behind the spirit of the world. To live by faith as Abraham did, leaving behind um, the spirit of the world, believing all that God has revealed to be true because he cannot deceive nor be deceived. Look, in our age of unbelief, that is something of a cross to carry. In our cynical, uh, in our skeptical age, to truly live by faith means we'll face, to some degree, hostility maybe ridicule or mockery, maybe even rejection. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, the world ridicules faith. Society rejects faith, those who live by faith. It's a lot harder when perhaps maybe it's among friends or family that we face that ridicule, that rejection. Yes, climbing the mountain, yes, carrying the cross is hard. However, the other thing our gospel shows us is that once we reach the peak All difficulties are forgotten, for we behold a truly awesome sight. Right? When our gospel, when the three apostles get to the peak, Jesus is transfigured before them. His divine glory is unveiled momentarily. And he unveils his divine glory to share the simple truth that the passion leads to the glory of the resurrection. The passion Christ will very soon undergo will lead to the resurrection. The transfiguration, it's an anticipation of Christ's glorification at his resurrection, and it's a consolation for us as we carry our cross. For it gives us a glimpse of what lies at the top of the mountain, at the end of the arduous climb that is carrying the cross. Eternal life, where we will see God as he is in himself unveiled, and in seeing him, we will be completely filled, satisfied happy and joyful beyond expression. So let us, like Abraham, live by faith, even if it means rejection by the world. Yes, Christ is not a tame lion, nor does he promise a safe and easy road. But let us follow him to the cross nonetheless, for the cross is the road that leads to eternal life.